listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So one thing I've observed over time is it always seems like there's that one thing. It may be that one item you need to make dinner that you forgot at the store, which, if you live or have ever lived in the country, is especially tragic. It may be that one tool you need to finish the work project that you don't have, or it may even be that one thing you forgot to pack before going on that trip. I can't tell you the number of times I've forgotten my glasses, my phone charger, or something else entirely. There was one time coming back from a trip in high school that I even forgot the car keys at the hotel in Branson. It was not a fun time. But regardless of what it is, I'm sure we're all familiar with the frustration of forgetting that one thing when we're trying to do something or get something done. So I say this because as we get to the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul entrusts Timothy with something to do. In chapter 1, verses 18 into 19, Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Timothy's something to do is to wage the good warfare. And as we go into chapter 2, this is important to keep in mind because it is key for understanding the instruction that Paul is about to give. Instruction Timothy is to follow, and instruction we should follow if we're going to wage the good warfare ourselves. Now, I know that some don't always like the imagery of warfare, especially going on in the United States. But just like Timothy, we are at war. And I don't mean with the media, And I don't mean with the people around us, though these are areas that the kind of war I'm talking about does impact. It's a spiritual war. In fact, we're in the same spiritual war that Timothy was in. So as we go into chapter 2, pay attention. Paul is going to tell Timothy, and by extension us, how to wage good warfare. And in that instruction, he's going to tell us that one thing that we cannot forget. As Paul tells us where to start, as he reminds us of our purpose and encourages us towards our calling. So read with me chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. God, we come to you this morning, and God, I pray that as we're about to dive into this passage, that God, it would be your spirit that comes down upon us, that as we're in the middle of a spiritual war, God, that you can let this be an encouraging and an equipping thing, and that your name may be proclaimed. pray all this in your holy and precious name, amen. So in verse 1. We have the phrase, first of all, then. Now that word then is in reference to the charge Timothy is given in chapter 1, verse 18, to wage the good warfare. 
That's how we know that this is related to the first step in waging that good warfare. So as we continue in verse 1, we see that that one thing we cannot forget when waging the good warfare is prayer. In fact, prayer is so important that Paul tells Timothy to start with it as the first step. So then the question is, what is prayer? And what does prayer look like? Now, if you've read enough Christian literature, you know a bunch of different models for how we can pray. But Paul gives a specific formula all of his own here, starting with supplication. Now, depending on the version, it may say petition. But this is the action of asking or begging for something earnestly or humbly. So you're making an ask of God. And what I really want to highlight here is that earnest and humble element. So you're not making an ask half-heartedly. There's this earnest desire. And then you're also making it humbly, not out of expectation or arrogance of this is what I'm owed, but knowing that God is capable of meeting that. Prayers is a reference to just general prayer over broad range of categories. Intercession is defined as the act of intervening on behalf of another. And just like supplication, it should be earnest. There should be an urgency, and your prayer should be bold in intercession. So if any of you were here a couple months ago, Pastor Nathan, before I left for Texas, I know, it's a sad time. Nathan, if you're watching, you got booed. But, like Nathan mentioned, our prayers shouldn't be timid. And a lot of the time, for some reason, our prayers can be really timid and half-hearted. But they shouldn't be. They need to be earnest and urgent and bold. If it's our first step in waging good warfare, we need to treat our prayers like we're in a wartime. So if you've watched any war movie ever, and you look out on the battlefield, and someone needs something, if they need reinforcements, if they need extra ammo, if they need some sort of supplies. Well, they aren't just sitting there in the heat of battle going, uh, hey, I hope this transmission finds you well. Uh, if you could get around to it, I really need this, like, pretty badly, but just at your earliest convenience. But that's kind of how we treat prayer. I mean, we go in and we say, dear God, uh, you know, I hope this prayer finds you well. Hope you're doing well. Uh, if you could, you know, I'm struggling with this, but... It's okay, because I'm going to try and do some stuff, figure it out. We're half-hearted in that. And when we act, ask for ourselves or on behalf of the other, we need to ask with the conviction that God is capable of meeting those demands. And then lastly, thanksgiving. Are we thanking God for his provision and blessing? And all the things that we ask, and however that matches up with what God provides, are we thankful for how God is providing for us in the moment? in the day-to-day, in the week-to-week, year-to-year. So this is our model for what prayer should look like. So then the question is, how do we pray? Do we pray like above? Or are our prayers typically brief? Are they selfish? Are they timid? And don't get me wrong, Paul's not saying that we have to pray with all those elements every single time. But they should all be present as you consider your prayer life as a whole. And overall, we must take heart and offer prayer to God. So we aren't asked to be eloquent with our words. We're just called to pray humbly. We're not to pray passively, but earnestly and with haste, because we're at war. And not timidly, but boldly, trusting that God is capable of answering prayer. 
not because God has to or that he always will answer like you think, but because God is sovereign and more than capable. And lastly, let us give thanksgiving in our prayer. Thanksgiving and petition are commonly seen together in Paul's writing, and that's because they give each other context. Because petition without thanksgiving is selfish. We're making ask and we're not thanking the God who's meeting those asks. But on the other hand, thanksgiving without petition lacks trust in God's provision. So you're saying, thank you, God, for what you've done, uh, and I'll come back and thank, but even if I'm struggling, people don't bring it up. So thank God, petition him, and trust that he can provide. Pray earnestly and boldly and humbly, knowing and trusting that God cares more about the quality of our heart towards him than the quality of the words that we use. And now that we know how to pray, let's look at who we should pray for. And in the rest of verse 1 and verse 2, we see that prayer should be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So in this section, we start with a broad call to pray for all people. And at face value, we typically don't have a problem with that. We say, yes, of course. We're willing to pray for ourselves, our spouse and our family, our community around us, that coworker we don't know how to reach, and sometimes we're even good about praying for all the different unreached people groups around the world. That's good, and that's commendable. Though we also need to be careful not to limit ourselves there. Because all people means all people. So along with that family member we like, we should also be diligent in praying for that family member that's difficult. With that community that's around us, we also need to pray for the past communities that we may not see as much anymore. Along with the coworker we're trying to minister to, we also need to pray for that coworker that we can't stand. And along with praying for unreached people groups around the world, we shouldn't neglect to pray for the unreached people here around us. Everyone, rich, poor, and everywhere in between, are in need of prayer, and it should be our first step in waging the good warfare for them. And as we're praying, remember how we are supposed to be praying for all of them, with petition, intercession, thanksgiving, and prayer. Praying boldly, earnestly, and humbly, faithfully trusting that God is good and capable of working all things for his good. Now that's the easy part. But Paul doesn't stop there. Because along with a broad focus to pray for all people, Paul also specifically gives direction to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. So let's stop there for a second. Timothy is being instructed to pray for kings and those who are in high positions. So who was the king while Timothy was alive? Well, it was this guy named Nero. And I don't know what you do or don't know about Nero, but he was a very bad guy. And that's putting it very, very lightly. For one, it's speculated that Nero is behind a great fire that went through Rome for the purpose of being able to rebuild how he wanted to. Nero then blamed that fire on Christians and used it as a launching point to start brutal persecution against them. And many Christians were murdered in a lot of different ways, each usually more gruesome than the last. All this to say, that's the king and authority that Timothy is being called to pray for. And not only being called to pray for, but being prayed for in the way that Paul described in verse 1. So what's that mean for us? Well, we may not have a king, but we do have government authorities that we should be praying for. And not just for those in political high positions, but we can, can and should also be praying for those in positions of authority at places like work and in all different spheres of our life. Now you may be wondering, what's the purpose in praying for those in authority positions? Or what impact does that actually have? And the reason is simple. 
We pray for authorities because they're the ones who set the stage. Proclaiming the gospel doesn't happen in a vacuum. Depending on where you're at, the culture may have very different rules, laws, and expectations that impact how gospel proclamation happens. And as we're striving to live the lifestyle that Paul describes, all those different factors play together in a way that can either help or hinder proclaiming the gospel. To put it another way, Paul is saying that our first step in waging good warfare is praying for the battlefield the war is happening on. And that's why we pray for leaders and authorities, because they help shape the battlefield. At the end of the day, whether we like it or not, and anymore a lot of us lean towards not, rulers have been appointed under God's sovereign providence, and the decisions they make do have an impact. And depending on the leadership, we end up with cultures that are easier or more difficult for proclaiming the gospel. For example, here in the United States, we have laws in place that protect religious freedom. And ideally, that should be a help. And while some people may debate if we're really that free, it's a lot more freedom than our brothers and sisters in China who are actively persecuted and jailed for proclaiming their faith. Or you can even think about Timothy. He had to minister and proclaim the gospel under the rule of Nero, someone who actively lied and misled to lead deadly persecution against the growing Christian church. Overall, you don't have to look very far or hard to find books, articles, videos, podcasts, on and on and on. And they are all on the many instances of government-ordained persecution from battlefields not in favor of gospel proclamation. But I don't want to get caught in the weeds there. And my goal isn't to tell you we should do better because we have it easy. Because that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is whether we have a favorable leadership or not, we need to be praying for those in authority for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. And living this out is hard. And if you're thinking, why is it that hard? Let me ask you this. How, if you do it all, are you praying for our governing authorities? In the wake of an election, with racial discrimination happening all around us, through dealing with the fallout of things like COVID and masking, and having more and more stories involving things like deconstruction and gender confusion, and a broken state, country, and world that is stained with sin. How have you been praying for the authorities of our day? Because going back to verse 1, we have a way that we should be praying for them. Paul gives us a formula for praying. But I don't think that's the case a lot of the times when it comes to praying for our authorities. I mean, a lot of us probably had an earnest response when Biden was voted in. But from what was available to see on social media, at least there weren't many prayers of thanksgiving for the leaders that were appointed. And that would have been the same even if Trump won. And let's be realistic. There are plenty of us across all lines that have had a steady prayer of the Lord come quickly since day one. But that's not how we're supposed to pray for our authorities. When it comes to praying for the kings and authorities of our day, It should be a positive intercessory action towards them, not the adversarial antagonistic attitude that so often stains not just our prayers, but our speech in general. And hear me, I'm not saying that you have to like and support the views of every single authority we have. But with every leader, we should be thanking God for the chance to faithfully proclaim the gospel. When we have a favorable battlefield for waging good warfare, we can thank God 
for living in a society where we can proclaim the gospel under the protection of the authorities, allowing us to focus more fully on proclaiming God's word freely. And when we have authorities who have created an unfavorable battlefield, we should still pray, giving thanks to God. Theologian Kostenberger said it well when he wrote, Where those in power engage in ungodly conduct, intercession for them is an instance of loving one's enemies and of praying for those who persecute believers in keeping with Jesus' command. So Christian, whoever our leadership is, let our prayers be marked with thanks to God and an earnest, positive intercession for our authorities. And whether those authorities have us in favorable or unfavorable battlefields for waging good warfare, let's not forget that we are called to proclaim the gospel regardless. And that does not change ever. So to that end, we need to be praying for those in all sorts of authority positions. And ultimately, we do it for the purpose, as it says in the rest of verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So this part of verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, is the desired result of why we're instructed to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. So it's crucial that we understand what this means and what Paul is getting at when he says this. And again, what Paul is ultimately getting at is proclaiming the gospel. You see, all the characteristics that we see in verse 2, peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified, are a lifestyle. They're attitudes and heart postures that correspond to the charge given to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul gives us this charge because going on from verse 5 to verses 6 and 7, it reads, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, Mark talked about all this last week, and if you want to know more, I would highly recommend listening to his sermon for a deeper explanation. But the short version is that in the church of Ephesus, Timothy was dealing with these false teachers. And while they were teachers, they weren't teaching the gospel. Instead, they promoted a Jewish elitism that didn't accept Gentiles. And they also spent their time in what Paul calls vain discussion. And it's vain in that it failed to produce spiritual fruit because it had no foundation in Christ or the Spirit. And that is not and should not be the goal for Timothy or for us. Instead, the goal Timothy is given in Paul's charge is love. And we shouldn't mistake this for the watered-down love that gets promoted in culture today. This is a love that is spirit work. A love that comes from the spirit working in us to produce a pure heart, a good conscience, and a pure faith. As opposed to living from a heart filled with sinful desire, a conscience laden with guilt, and a faith built on pretense, expectation, and hypocrisy. So living a life that is peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified in every way is leading a life that outwardly shows the love resulting from the inworking of the Spirit. And this is the love that we need to have as we seek to proclaim the gospel and as we pray for the authorities and all people. Paul's charge to Timothy is ultimately to live a lifestyle of proclaiming the gospel with a heart posture that comes from living a Spirit-worked love. And that's what it means to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We need to be careful not to assume that Paul is talking about living a life free from affliction or suffering or godly discipline. And it's also not living a life where we pray for the government to do the work for us so we can kick our feet up and feel at ease. 
It's living a life where we humbly trust in God and his work. A life where we actively proclaim the gospel. And a life where we pray for all people, and specifically authorities, that our focus would be free from any noise that would obscure the plain proclamation of Jesus' saving work. This is the lifestyle that Timothy is urged to strive towards as he's waging good warfare, and it's also a lifestyle that we should aspire to as we strive to wage the good warfare in our own lives. And since we now know that we need to start with prayer, let's move into our purpose for waging war in the first place. And our purpose for going to war is, like it was for Timothy, proclaiming the gospel truth. Verses 3 through 6. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So starting in verse 3, this is good and it was pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Theologian Philip Towner noted something really interesting about this verse. You see, the language of being good and pleasing in the sight of God may be a reference to the Old Testament sacrifice system. And if that's the case and that reference was intended, then that connection would have been very apparent to Timothy and many readers at the time. And practically speaking, that reference is significant because it implies that under the new covenant, our prayer should be as integral to us as sacrifice was in the Old Testament system. Let that sink in a little bit. If that connection is true, our prayer should be as frequent and as purposeful as the sacrifice offerings in the Old Testament. And just in case you don't know, or you're a little rusty on your Old Testament, that's a lot. And moving on to verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. If you remember earlier, part of Paul's letter was addressing false teachers in the church. And one thing those teachers were promoting was a Jewish elitism that didn't recognize the Gentiles as legitimate heirs of Christ's atoning work. However, Paul is explicit here that God desires all people to be saved, Jew and Gentile. And it's this distinction, Jew and Gentile, that Paul means when he says all people. This isn't saying that God wants everyone to be saved and has a desire he can't fulfill, but rather that God's offer of salvation is available to all. Paul also states that God desires all people should come to knowledge of the truth. Why? Because those with a full knowledge of truth are the ones who are taking action for God's glory and not their own. This full knowledge of truth leads us to that quiet, peaceful, godly, and dignified life that, like I said before, outwardly shows the inworking of the Spirit. So we want to have a full knowledge of the truth. And we know the knowledge is full when we use it for the sake of applying truth to live a godly life. You can have an empty knowledge of truth. 2 Timothy 3, verse 7 mentions that there are people who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. And their knowledge is empty because these people seek knowledge without applying it to their life. And ultimately, head knowledge without heart change is empty and incomplete. So God desires us all to have a full knowledge of truth. And what is that truth? That truth is the gospel. Verses 5 and 6. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and men. This mediator is Jesus. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. 
Jew and Gentile. And this is the testimony given at the proper time. This is the plain gospel truth. We have one God and one way to him. And that way is Christ. It's not a preacher. It's not through the government. It's not through any sort of program. And as much as we struggle with it sometimes, it's not through ourselves either. Our power, our knowledge, our education, our job, our income, our relationship status, our discipline, nothing that we can do or produce is enough. But rather, it's through Christ and Christ alone. It's through his coming to earth and dying on the cross as a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins and iniquity and as a ransom for all that we can know God through him. When this knowledge leads to a heart change, for a desire to pursue God and make him known to the ends of the earth, this is the full knowledge of truth. It's distinct and rooted in knowing God, who he is, what he's done, and what he promises to do. And how amazing of a purpose is that? How amazing is it that we get to proclaim that truth? And how amazing is it that that is what we get to go to war for? So in engaging in good warfare, we know to start with prayer. And we also know the purpose we're going to war for. All that's left is to do our part. Verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here Paul is giving his buy-in. He's giving his testimony and the truth he's proclaiming. Paul is saying, hey, I'm a preacher. Some translations may say herald, but as someone who's publicly proclaiming the gospel. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle, and I'm telling the truth about that. I'm not lying. Unlike the false teachers, I have my calling. I have my road to Damascus moment, and I have this purpose. And he's not lying about the calling or the truth he's proclaiming because of it. And Paul is a teacher. He's someone who answers questions and helps people to learn and to grow. And from his calling, Paul teaches the Gentiles, and he teaches them in faith and truth. So what does this mean for us? Paul isn't the only one with a calling. We may not all be called to be a pastor, But we are all called to mission. Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. If you have saving faith in Christ, you are one of those saints. And if you have saving faith in Christ, then you have a calling to be active in building up the body of Christ, to wage good warfare and to fulfill the mission of making God's glory known to the ends of the earth. A mission that was originally given to Adam in Genesis and a mission that's ultimately accomplished in Christ. We have our calling. And even though it's not like Paul, and we probably weren't blinded on the road to Bolivar, our calling is clear. We're to make disciples of all nations including the one that we're in right now. We're to live a full knowledge of truth that outwardly shows the inworking of the Spirit. We're to wage good warfare, faithfully proclaiming the gospel wherever we are. And that all starts with prayer. 
prayer for all people, and prayer for those who are authorities over us. Timothy was in a spiritual war, and so are we. It's not optional, and it's not something that we should ignore either. But instead, let us wage the good warfare. Don't forget to start with prayer. It should be our starting point, and it's that one thing that we cannot afford to forget. Let our prayers be for all people and all authorities, and let our prayers be bold, earnest, and positive, marked with thanksgiving for and trust in God's provision. Let us fully and joyfully pursue our purpose to faithfully proclaim the gospel wherever we are and on whatever kind of battlefield we're on. And lastly, let us be reflections of Christ's light, letting our actions be from a spirit-worked love as we fulfill our calling to make disciples of all nations.